right. Oh, it's good to be here this morning. Uh, thank you, John and Kathy. When he opened the service, he talked about, or he had a prayer where he prayed for our fighting, fighting forces overseas. And we don't often think about praying for them, but today, April 29th, happens to be my father-in-law's uh, Liberation Day. Uh, he's no longer with us, but uh, Owen Strand was a POW in World War II. And on April 29th, 1945, they woke up and the gates were open, all the guards had disappeared, and Patton's troops came marching in. And uh, he would never work on that day, April 29th, after that, his day of liberation. Well, I've been uh, reading the book Hamilton, which, uh, <laughs> which inspired the mega Broadway uh, hit and, uh, by the same name. And I have to say, after reading this book, it's caused me to revise my view of the Founding Fathers. I mean, I'd always put them on a some, somewhat of a pedestal, maybe just slightly below the early apostles. And uh, it's easy to get discouraged by looking at our current political landscape. But reading this book, I am no longer romanticizing the past. Uh, human beings at that time were just as flawed as human beings are today. And uh, the, the political atmosphere... Uh, immediately following the American Revolution was just as poisonous and bitter and mean-spirited and uh, with vicious name-calling and personal attacks. Sounds kind of familiar. So I've had to question this idea about taking back America, if that is even possible, and uh, ask myself, what should concern me more, preserving the moral foundation of America or advancing God's kingdom both here and around the world. Uh, yes, we may be living in a season of moral decline, what some have called a post-Christian era, uh, but if morality is our main concern, uh, focusing on how bad the world is, we can get pretty discouraged and we can lose sight of reaching out to the people that we need to be reaching out to with God's love. And sadly, the politics of it all can get us into this us versus them mentality. This morning, we're going to meet a Pharisee who had an us versus them mentality. But God's going to use the life of a, of a transformed woman in an attempt to reach this lost man who happens to be a Pharisee. Uh, the woman is a wonderful example of God's love, of a, of a woman who loved Jesus. And uh, she has a lot to teach us about loving Jesus even more. So this morning, can you say you really love him? Can you say you really love him? Well, let me pray before, as we open God's word to Luke 7. Lord, oh, <coughs> pray that... Uh, you would cause by your spirit these words to come alive to our hearts and to change us into the people that you want us to be. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, reading from Luke chapter 7, I'm going to back up a little bit to some of what uh, Jeff's passage last week to kind of set the, set the stage. 
Luke 7, verse uh, 31 to 36. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. So Jesus has been accused of being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He's even been accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. And when the Pharisees made these accusations at him, he proceeded to tell them a a story about seeking lost things and the joy of finding lost things. In In the stories... Uh, the lost things represent lost people, sinners. And the, these are the same people that they complained that he was hanging around. Now, surprisingly, sinners were very comfortable hanging out with Jesus. Did you ever wonder about that? I mean, he was morally perfect, and yet somehow he didn't intimidate them in, in his moral perfection. Probably because he loved them in their imperfections. Sinners enjoyed hanging around Jesus because he didn't come off as judgmental or condemning. And isn't that a major accusation against Christians today, that we're too judgmental or self-righteous or condemning? After all, no one likes to be around somebody who exudes spiritual pride. But Jesus was not only willing to hang around sinners, he was also interested, he, he not only hung around with garden variety sinners, he hung around with religious sinners. So, such as this Pharisee that we're going to meet this morning named Simon, and he accepted an invitation to his house. <clears throat> now, what are some of the characteristics that we can see of the Pharisees, or having a Pharisaical attitude. Number one, they put people into categories of us and them. They steered clear of people who they considered to be undesirables or unclean. They held them at arm's length. They loved people who loved them back. They were quick to condemn, but slow to forgive. They could easily see the sin in other people, but were blind to their own failings. Now, they thought they were good people, God's people. In in their self-righteous awareness, they thought they were doing pretty well, that they, they were okay just the way they were. Now, some of you may know the most difficult person to save is the person who considers himself or herself a good person because they don't perceive that they have any need for a savior. The word 
Pharisee actually means separate. They thought that holiness was achieved by separating themselves from sin and from sinners. But Jesus was upsetting this Old Testament paradigm, this Old Testament understanding, and how radical it was for Jesus to draw near to sinners, and even in some cases to touch those who were considered unclean or allowed them to touch him. The Old Testament dealt with sin as if it was an incurable disease. So the idea was to avoid contact with sin and sinners. And part of this was God's design to preserve the Jewish people until the Messiah came. But Jesus changed everything by bringing a cure for sin that would would cure the heart from the inside out. So Jesus is the cure for sin. So if he avoided sinners, that would be like withholding a cure for cancer or, or HIV. he had compassion on sinners and that's why he went to them to bring the cure. In the early days of the AIDS crisis, uh, many Christians avoided people who were carrying the virus. Who are those untouchable people today? Who Who are the people that we may be avoiding or holding at arm's length? I've heard a statistic that uh, within three years of becoming a Christian, 90% of your friends are all Christians. Now, why in the world did this Pharisee invite Jesus over to his house? Was he merely curious about uh, the miracles and about the teachings of Jesus? Or did he really want to try to trap Jesus? Was he collecting Evidence that might be used by the Pharisees to incriminate him. Well, it's wonderful. The wonderful thing about Jesus is that he did accept this invitation. He was willing to extend kindness and courtesy even to those who might be his enemies. Let's look at verses 37 and 38. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table, at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing beside, behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, this story should not be confused with a similar story that took place at the home of Mary and Martha in the final week of Jesus' life. And in that story, Mary poured perfume on Jesus' feet. And it it was uh, an act of devotion that we can look now and see that it was preparation for his death and burial. In our Luke uh, passage, the people at that time were not uh, sitting in chairs as they ate around a table but they were uh, on pillows or couches on the floor. And typically they would lean on one elbow, eat eat with the other hand, and then their feet would be away from the table. In verse 37, we see this word, behold. And Steve Krantz, uh, in his teaching to us, has, has taught us that when we see that word, we should pay attention. 
Uh, it means take a look at this. Something startling or perhaps shocking is about to take place. And it seems this woman, a, a sinful woman, uh, a notorious woman has come into the gathering and uh, she is someone who seemed to have a reputation that preceded herself. Many of the commentators jump to the conclusion that she was a prostitute, but the passage doesn't tell us that. We don't know if she was a thief, um, if she was uh, had a problem with alcohol, if she'd uh, been divorced many times and was living with a man, if she'd committed adultery. We don't know, but she was known in that town. But what the people in this gathering didn't realize is that just recently she had trusted in Jesus as her Savior and Lord and had all of her sins forgiven. And uh, the people in this room still viewed her as this disreputable person. Now, she was overwhelmed by the forgiveness that Jesus had extended to her, and she has this emotional outpouring. She started weeping, and the tears are running down her cheeks and then falling onto the feet of our Lord. When it says that she wet his feet with her tears, the Greek word there literally means rain. She rained tears on his feet. Well, then she let her hair down and began to wipe his feet with her tears. With, began to wipe, wipe away the tears with her hair. Now, Jew, Jewish women at that time were required to either cover their hair, cover their hair, or wear it up uh, when they were in public. And so, if a woman let her hair down in public, she was considered a loose woman. Uh, perhaps a prostitute. Um, it was considered sexually provocative. So if a wife did that in public, it would be grounds for divorce. As if this scene was not shocking enough, she begins to kiss the feet of Jesus with abandon. And the word for kissing here is an intense word. It's, it's the same word that was used in the story of the prodigal son to describe the father's Kisses of the son when he returns home. I think we can learn from this dramatic incident that worship often takes place at the feet of Jesus. Sometimes that's the right place to be, at his feet, bowing down, even prostrating ourselves at his feet. Occasionally I might feel a little bit self-conscious about raising my hands in worship. But this woman was so focused on Jesus and what he had done for her, she wasn't thinking about anybody else in the room. It was just that undivided, vertical connection between her and God in human flesh. And we can learn that something about worship from that, that we that uh, we really shouldn't be thinking about everybody else in the room. We should have that unobstructed focus on, on Jesus. And then we can also learn about the emotion that was poured out here. In some religious traditions, um, uh, 
tend toward a more they tend toward a more intellectual form of worship, and that's fine. Uh, the scripture says, however, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So it is okay to love God with your mind as well as your heartfelt emotions. It's amazing that she never utters a word here, at least that is recorded. But she demonstrated her love with this passionate uh, response that shocked everyone in the room as that room filled up with her fragrance. You might say that she has a crazy love. And uh, when you're head over heels in love with someone, sometimes you do some crazy things. You might do some things that might be considered a little bit irrational. And uh, uh, you might wax poetic or, or just do something foolish publicly. Well, this woman was a fool for Christ as she showered him with this extravagant love. By her actions, we can see that this woman's life had been transformed. Let's look at verse 39 and the reaction of the Pharisee. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, what one word might we choose to describe this Pharisee's reaction? Okay. I, I, I see him showing disgust. He was disgusted by this display uh, of emotion coming from this woman, of uninhibited emotion. He couldn't get past his own, his own prejudices. He couldn't get past his own uh, self-righteous uh, sense of what was right and wrong. I think this is part of why the Jews were often referred to as a stiff-necked people, this kind of response. But Jesus saw something different in this woman's heart. He saw, when he looked at her, he saw a contrite heart. Now Jesus tells the Pharisee a story in verses 40 to 43. And Jesus answered to him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. The Pharisee got this one right. He could see that a person who has forgiven much also loves much. And the person who thinks that they haven't sinned all that much and they're forgiven, they seem to love Jesus less. Our translation says that the, that the moneylender canceled the debt. And a more literal translation would be that he uh, graciously forgave the debt. There is an element of grace 
involved in forgiving the debt. Now, how does grace enter into this? Well, if someone owes you $5,000 and you forgive it, who just paid the debt? You did. The debt just, just doesn't go away or disappear. Someone has to pay the debt. Somebody has to take that hit and pay it. So if you forgive someone else's debt, you just incurred the debt completely yourself. The debt got transferred to you. Now, of course, this story is really a parable about sin. When God offers to forgive your sins, the debt doesn't go away. It still has to be paid. The penalty, the debt that you're that your sins have incurred that build up over time, what happened to them? They got transferred to Jesus when he died on the cross for your sins. How did he pay for your debt of sin? He didn't pay with money. He didn't pay with $5,000 or $500,000. He paid with his precious blood shed on the cross. Well, who in the story do you think has the greater debt? The immoral woman or the man? (laughs) Okay. Well, on the surface, outwardly, as we might look at things, it would appear to be the woman, but God also looks at the heart, not just the outward signs. And the Pharisee was guilty of pride and self-righteousness, which are serious sins. And surprisingly, the Bible says that pride is the most serious sin of all because it blinds us to our true condition. Both the immoral woman and the Pharisee both had a debt because of their sins that they could not pay. But only one of them recognized it. So who's in bigger trouble? The person who's drowning in 50 feet of water or the person drowning in 500 feet of water? (laughs) Both of them are in a perilous condition. The Pharisee thinks he's in a better place drowning in in, uh, in 50 feet of water or 500 feet of water. He thinks he's a pretty good person and that his good deeds outweigh the the bad deeds, and so therefore he should go to heaven. But his good deeds will not buy him entrance to heaven. A holy God can never allow this a person carrying a debt load of sin to enter into heaven. So if this sin problem is not taken care of, all of these good deeds that he's done in his life are like putting frosting on a moldy cake. Now this notorious woman understood the magnitude of what Jesus had done for her. And she, in in, uh, wiping the slate clean and forgiving all of her sins, and she has this beautiful response in loving Jesus passionately. Sometimes I can lose sight of the enormity of what Jesus did for me We just went through Holy Week recently. 
And for me, after 30 plus years of following Jesus, the, I can become kind of numb to my emotional connection to that story. We had an unusual experience in our family uh, this Easter. My mother-in-law, Harriet, who is 93, came to have lunch with us on Easter Day. Harriet has dementia, and she is talking less and less. Often we just get a one-word answer when we ask her something, and if she has a full sentence, that's kind of a small victory. Harriet has prayed to receive Christ with us twice in the last couple of years, but we have seen few signs where we just haven't seen her really have much of a desire to talk about what Jesus means to her, haven't seen any real passion or enthusiasm to talk about him. So we were all stunned at the end of our Easter lunch when she began to speak about a series of dreams that she had during Holy Week, and the dreams were about the final week of Jesus' life, the very first Holy Week. And these dreams were so vivid and so real to her, uh, it felt like she had been there, like she watched his betrayal. She was uh, an observer of his trial. She watched him carry the cross and drop it in the street. Uh, She saw the nails pounded into his hands. And she watched him breathe his last. And she talked for a full 45 minutes about this dream, and she's weeping as she's telling the story, and she's wiping away the tears. And uh, she was so moved by by the betrayal, by his mistreatment, horrified as she watched the nails pounded into him. And she kept saying over and over, I can't believe his own friends betrayed him. His own friends. That really got to me. So like the woman in the passage this morning, she fully appreciated the magnitude of what Jesus had done. And she had an emotional response to that. Let's read verses 44 to 50. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now the Pharisees' reaction to this story was they were alarmed that Jesus, whom they considered a mere man, was acting like God and forgiving sins. And they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? 
They were ready to charge him with blasphemy because of this. And in a sense, they were right to do that. Because either Jesus was committing blasphemy, or he really was God in human flesh. There's some out there who think of Jesus as a good teacher or a prophet. He said some good things that I can follow, make my life a little better. But they don't think he's really God. Well, who else can forgive sins? Who else can heal somebody who was born blind? Who else could walk on water? Who else could speak to the wind and the waves? And they obeyed him. Who else could feed 5,000 people from a little boy's lunch? Jesus tells the woman that her faith has saved her. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not by works that anyone should boast. Jesus came to save lost sinners. He went after them. He pursued them. They enjoyed being around him because he did not condemn them. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So friends, if we want to be more like Jesus, we have to stop condemning the world and start loving sinners. We have to stop condemning the world and start loving sinners. Jesus saw them like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. He told the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery, in the very act, that he did not condemn her. Jesus demonstrated to us that when someone is lost, you go out, you pursue them, and you find them, And when you find them, you embrace them and rejoice. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to say a prayer. And if you've never decided to follow Jesus, this would be a great morning to do that. You may have been carrying a debt load of sin your entire life, and you'd like to wipe the slate clean. He offers to make that transfer for you. Take all those sins on himself and allow you to have that burden of debt taken away. So I'm going to say a prayer right now. If you want to pray along with me, uh, you can do that. Lord, I confess that I have gone my own way, that I have often uh, run from you, God. But this morning I want to make a U-turn. I confess that I am a sinner But I want to follow you. I believe that you died and rose again. And I invite you now for your Holy Spirit to come into my life. I confess you as my Savior and Lord. I give control of my life over to you. And I invite you to make me into the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen.